0: Welcome to more to come. PW, uh, let's start again. I've only done this like a million times. Hold on, three, two, one. Welcome to more to come. Publishers Weekly's a weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, senior news editor of Publishers Weekly and co-editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com/slash/comics. All right. Well, this week we have the great pressure, pleasure to be talking <laughs> transcontinentally. Uh, over Skype uh, with Shelly Bond. Now, you're like Senior Editor of Special Projects uh, of Black Crown. I I, I'm, I think That's I saw that listed a fancy somewhere. Title. That's yeah,
1: a sexy title, but no pressure, right? Okay, it, all right. I hope, be, I hope it will be a pleasure for both of us. It'll definitely um, be a pleasure. I'm technically the Senior Editor of Special Projects um, at IDW, Great. but – I like to refer to myself as black crown HQ. All right, great. There you go. I'm the editor and curator of the black crown imprint that IDW publishing produces.
0: All right. Well, uh, 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 special Agent Shelley Bond, welcome to More to Come.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I like that. I'm going to change to that right now. Uh, yeah, That's-
0: I kind of like it. Well, when you, well, when, uh, when our readers actually go out, if they haven't already, um, picked up either the Black Crown Quarterly or, or some of the, um, uh, uh, collections that are, I guess, just hitting the marketplace now, uh, they'll see what I mean when I say special agent. So this is a really, uh, terrific, um, New line of comics and graphic novels, um, uh, obviously very influenced by punk rock uh, and the English scene, um, uh, it, it, it's, uh, and, what I should say, very different kinds of comics. Is, is that a pretty good um, description?
1: Oh, yeah. That, you, you nailed it. It's, it's music and comics. Um, I feel so privileged that I'm able to produce comics that I actually want to read that have a really distinctive voice that mix art and alchemy, opulence yeah. and chaos. Mm-hmm. And and like you said, punk rock, you know, why do anything The, the like everyone else? Um, I'm always looking to kind of break new ground, and I believe in fierce invention. you got to jump right in.
0: Okay. Oh, great. Well, obviously, you, you, you gave a much better description. Now, we also want to talk uh, about Femme Magnifique. Now, is that a part of Black Crown too, or a, sep- a separate pro- uh, project?
1: Kind of, sort of. It, yeah, okay. it, it it it's got a great backstory. Um, we just released the soft cover version of Femme Manifique, mm-hmm. uh which has a subtitle: 50 Magnificent Women Who Changed the World." The anthology book. Now IDW just released the soft cover of the anthology, but it started as a Kickstarter, mm-hmm. and yeah. it was always a part of my original imprint strategy that I pitched to IDW. Uh, when I was hired in um, the beginning of 2017. So that's the kind of sort of. So, but it'll make more sense when we talk about
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an amazing project. I mean, the stories of 50 amazing women uh, by just um, a, a a galaxy of uh, indie comic stars of all kinds. It's a really uh, an amazing collection of work.
1: Thanks. You know, it was like such a labor of love to put together. Um do you want me to talk about the genesis of that first?
0: You know what I do, but uh, you know, as we chatted you know, a little bit uh, before we started here, let's, let's let our listeners know a little bit more about Shelly Bond. T- tell us a little bit about your, your background in comics. Now, what I didn't mention, and I am, is that you are also uh, a former executive editor of Vertigo, uh, the legendary. Uh, DC Comics in, uh, imprint, and uh, and you worked for many years under uh, Karen, the, I should say, Hall of Fame uh, editor, Karen Berger.
1: Yes, that is true. And I was, I was a part of the original Vertigo um, right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was the last original member of the Vertigo team to come in. Um, I started in the winter of 1992. I basically was living in Philadelphia. I heard there was a spot open at DC Comics. Now, I had starred in my comics career at Kamiko. I'll I'll rewind a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, please do. Uh, Was not a comics reader. Actually, was not a big reader as a kid. I loved the Peanuts, but I couldn't sit still. I was (laughs) more likely to be tap dancing or twirling a baton. My sister was the avid reader, and I didn't want to be anything like my sister. So it was rather... (laughs) uh, you know, rather odd that I ended up being in publishing, but I got into comics in college. I was a film, video, and audio production major at Ithaca College, Mm -hmm. and in 1987, I took a screenwriting class, and that class introduced me to comics. My teacher showed us Peter Gross's Empire Lanes to show us what storyboarding looked like, and I was fascinated because I had I didn't even realize comics were still published. I was not a superhero <laughs> person. I wanted to be an auteur. I wanted to make my own films. I wanted to move to London and be famous. I had no interest in comic books. But I was fascinated that comics were actually still still available. And that he our teacher was showing us something that wasn't capes and tights. Yeah. So there there was a kid in my class who who said to me, hey, there's a comic book shop downtown. Um, I'll show you where it is. There are so many great stories and different types of artwork in comics now. It was like the late 80s, so it was another terrific revolution in comics with the indie scene. And I walked into the comic book store, and I was like Dorothy and Oz. I couldn't believe it. I picked up Love and Rockets. Ah, I picked up Bill Sienkiewicz, um and Frank Miller's Electra Assassin, and I had to pick up my eyeballs off the floor because I could not believe that fine artists were making comics. And truth be told, it was really the Hernandez brothers that put me in the editing seat. Because as soon as I started to read Love and Rockets, I knew I had to make comics a part of my daily life. And I couldn't write. And I couldn't draw, so I knew I had to do something else. So I was certain that I was going to find a way to be a part of this wonderful medium, and hopefully elevate the art form.
0: Well, that um, you aren't the only one, obviously. Yeah, you know what? I, I sort of. I mean, I, I did grow up reading comics, and 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 I kind of dropped in and out. Um, I was, you know, I I started as a superhero uh, kid many many years back. I'm, you know, I grew up in the nineteen sixties. But we share one thing. Uh, love and Rockets actually brought me back into comics. Uh, oh, after, wow. I, after I'd read, I, I'd moved to New York shortly, um, in, early in 1981. Well, really, mid 1981
1: in June. And but, uh, probably,
0: oh, you don't look
1: young. You don't look young enough. <laughs> I'm 66.
0: <laughs> oh my god! So I love I'm a compliment. So you're a, that's a great compliment. I appreciate it. Uh, but I, um, it, a couple of years after I moved to New York, I read a story in the Village Voice about Love and Rockets, and that's where my new story of Love and Comics began. So I am followed down a similar path to you.
1: Oh, that's amazing. I, I love hearing that. And, you know, it, it, it was always like a dream of mine to work with Gilbert and Jaime. And I got to say, they're the greatest guys in comics as well. You know, they're not yeah. just like, you know, Fierce storytellers and like innately gifted, you know, talents. They're like the coolest guys on the planet.
0: <laughs> yes, they're all of that and more, yes. <laughs> well, and we'll talk about that too. You do get a chance to, uh, you have gotten a chance to work with them.
1: Oh, yeah. Right. I've, I, many times I yeah. feel super lucky. Uh, to give you the quick uh, story about how I went from film school to the original Vertigo team, got out of college. Sent out 212 resumes, couldn't get a job in film, moved to Philadelphia, heard that Kimiko, the comic company, which you might recall was an indie company, yeah. was located in Norristown, went into my local comic shop. At that time, I was collecting comics. Like I would be there every Friday to get my stash. And my first DC comic was Hellblazer, which was oh, edited by okay. Karen Berger. So I was very aware of that, uh, of that comic. I was more into indie stuff, though, to be honest. You know, mm-hmm. I followed, like, Randall, um sure. by Matt Wagner. Sure. He was a real um, storytelling hero of mine and continues to be. Um, but I went to Kamiko, had the interview with Diana Schutz. She was my mm-hmm. first boss in Comics. Oh, combat. sure, yeah. And so, yeah, I felt really lucky. Like, I really learned, like, um, at the heels of the masters. And they're women, you know? Yeah, both yeah. The people don't
0: know. She's really one of the great legendary editors in this business.
1: Oh, absolutely. So she, somehow I convinced her to hire me. I was like this goth kid. (laughs) And I did the reverse commute from Philadelphia to Norristown. It was um, 52 minutes on the train and a two-mile walk. Um, I've got to be good friends. Really? Yes.
0: All right. That's commitment. I
1: I have to just say that uh, something that has really um, uh, affected how I look and create comics, you know, part of what I do, I hope, reflects in the um, art and design. You know, I'm very Mm -hmm. particular about uh, editing everything. Um, I'm a hands-on editor and everything to me is edited, not just the story, not just the dialogue. Of course I strive for clarity and brevity, but the art and design is just as important. So I edit the logo, I'm looking at the colors. That came about when I was working with Rick Taylor, who was the art director at Uh huh. He also lived in Philadelphia, so we did the reverse commute together. And when Diana Schutz and Bob Shrek left Kimiko, um, the owner Phil Lasorda asked Rick and I to run the company. I was 22. I was wow. just like your classic goth kid, and you know, with the the black lipstick and the big hair. And I and I was asked if I could be the editorial department, and I said, of course I could. You know, I felt like I could, you know, change the world. So for a year, we kept the company afloat. When it went under, uh, I worked in film a little bit and then mm-hmm. casting. But when I heard that Karen was still looking for an assistant at Vertigo, now this is back in December of 92, um, I heard it the last minute, so I faxed her my resume. And she called me in for an interview. I went in. I got the job, but I was told that I had to be there in two weeks because the line was launching that, like in that January. Mm-hmm. So my mom and I just hopped the train. Went into Manhattan, walked a six-block radius from DC Comics uh-huh. to the cheapest apartment, which at that <laughs> time was in Hell's Kitchen. And thank God I was with my mother, who always wanted to live in New York City, never had the chance. If my father was with me, I would have never been allowed to take that apartment because I it, love was, it. <laughs> it was it was no man's land. And my mom said, "We're getting a new apartment. We're taking it. Don't tell your father." And I'm like, "Mom." Hello. So yeah, that was it. Um, I knew I was going to be working twenty four seven because I knew mm-hmm. that it was going to be a tough road up the ladder. And I had already had editing credits at that point. Mm-hmm. I was working with Bill Willingham, who, by the way, yeah. was the fir- he was the first writer artist to convince me that there was something you could do with superhero comics. I something was not- different. Something different, something smart. Because to me, especially at that time, I was still pretty horrified by what people considered to be smart superhero comics. I still looked at them as, you know, men representing women running around in bikinis Mm and high heels. And you can't run in those shoes.
0: (laughs) That's true. And you're talking about Bill Willingham, the the, the great uh, Creed of the Fables series, yeah.
1: Yes, that Bill really impressed me. I worked with him on Elementals for the final few issues of of the run. And I was basically chasing him around the the country because at that time, he was slippery when it came to deadlines. And I spent a lot of my time trying to find him and beg him for scripts. But it was never lost on me that he was a genius. And I always said if I make it to a a big company, I was going to look him up.
0: Right. Well, you obviously like worked with some tremendous authors, at, uh, authors uh, at Vertigo. I mean, just very quickly because we want to we want to get back to black ground. Can you let our listeners know some of the uh, the authors you work with uh, during your time at Vertigo?
1: Oh my god, yeah, there's so many. Um, I was lucky enough to work with Dean Motter mm. on Terminal City with Michael Lark, mm. and that was just an incredible experience. Um, also, someone who I think broke new ground in comics with Mister X. And getting back to Mr. Axe, you probably remember that the um, Hernandez brothers also did a Mm -hmm. short stint on that property. But I also thought that Dean had such a tremendous voice and style. I worked with Ed Brubaker on Scene of the Crime and Dead Enders, which Mm -hmm. are also two books that are really um, special to me. And Steve Siegel and Teddy Christensen, who I think brought such a tremendous artistry to comics in the mid nineties at a time when people weren't taking chances with inventive uh, cover techniques. Mm-hmm. You know, we were, we had a, of course, kick and scream and fight to move the logo from the top third to uh, maybe the middle or the bottom of the comic. But we always tried to make a sound argument for it because I think it was important to me to constantly uh, make sure that both the writer and the artist were treated equally. They were both an important part of the team. and I, Because I came from such a visual background, that meant a lot to me. And fortunately, working for someone like Karen, she kind of understood that I was bringing a different aesthetic yeah. to the editorial side of comics. And so she let me take those chances. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So, and uh, um, uh, I think it was somewhere around 2014, you took over it. At- uh, vertigo you know, it, uh, when yeah, Karen left.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Karen left around 2013, and I was promoted to executive editor. And yeah, I kind of knew that my big project was Sam and Overture. Karen, um, sure, was working with Neil on the first script and with JH Williams. And I had worked with Neil for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, Karen and I both edited. Oh, yes, Neil
0: Gaiman, of course. <laughs> yes.
1: So, you know, I knew that was the big project that they wanted me to, to pull together, and that was, you know, you know Neil very well. Um, I, his reputation in comics and in the literary world is legendary, but the thing I like most about working with Neil was that he was always so appreciative Mm -hmm. of everything I did on his titles. So I started as an assistant on Sandman 46. And by the way, you must know that I met Neil and Dave McKean on my first day at DC Comics.
0: (laughs) Talk
1: about no pressure.
0: Yeah, boy, I'll say that's uh, got to be quite a way to start.
1: (laughs) It was intense. But the truth of the matter is, I was much more of a Doom Patrol reader and a uh-huh. Shade the Teaching Man reader at the time. So I did a lot of cramming. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really into the fantasy stuff. Mm-hmm. I really preferred the more existential, surrealist side of comics. But it was still pretty intense to meet them. And to work on Salmon Overture was just, like, um, a delight. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that J.H. and Neil, as a team, were a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a great pleasure to put that together. Um, I... I, I really always, I think that the thing that's interesting about w- working for Vertigo when it was under Karen's um, purview was that if you proved that you were really passionate about a writer or an artist or an idea or a theme you wanted to cover in comics, she was great about just letting you go for it. As long as you you know presented a sound argument and, I always wanted to carve my own niche in comics. So I hope that, um, that translates to what I'm doing now, because I don't really think, I think comics in at least for vertigo editors that you remember are the ones that had a point of view. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what really differed, especially back in the nineties, you know, there were very few places that did create their own comics. So to stand out, a lot of it was editorial driven. And maybe, I don't know if people really realize that, you know, I look at the coterie of talent that I worked with and they were pretty much hand selected.
0: Well, without a doubt. Well, I, I, I'm more than happy to, to reassure you, if you don't know already that, I mean, what uh, Vertigo was doing in the nineties under Karen and, uh, and then subsequently under you, that you guys really, uh, you were you prefigured, you anticipated really the world of comics, in my view, uh, and I've told Karen this as well, uh, that we live in today. I mean, the kinds of, of, of comics you were uh publishing, the multi genre uh universe of comics that you pioneered. We have moved into that world. The, mul- the, the obviously the North American marketplace for comics has been dominated by one genre, obviously for many many decades. That's the superhero sure. genre. No knock on it. We, you know, superhero comics obviously have uh, you know kind of got us to where we are now in America. But we have moved out, and obviously I write about comics from the perspective of the book trade, which I have, think has been a tremendous influence on comics. But you guys were there okay. before anybody publishing a wide variety of genre comics for for people who maybe wanted a little something different
1: oh absolutely and like let's just bring up diversity my god you know
0: absolutely like
1: uh you know that that chatter about it now i think god think about it like back in 1993 peter milligan Mm -hmm. had uh was was writing about Bisexuality and shade the changing man. Like yeah. how mm-hmm. fierce was that? I was a big fan of of pushing the boundaries of gender and identity. And I think that Karen, from the trade paperback perspective, my God, she was one of the real innovators of putting the periodical into a form where people could actually uh, respect it as just not another quote unquote floppy. And I hate that term. I'm, I'm a periodical purist. <laughs> I love paper. I still get my comics as periodicals, but I get it. I know that there are still people that don't want to walk into a comic book store and there still aren't a lot of comic book stores around. Yeah. So I think Karen really um, did the industry a huge service by pushing for those trades and those graphic novels, those Absolutely. original graphic novels from going from hardcover to softcover. Absolutely. But in terms of... Um, of Uh, gender preferences, it was all there in the early 90s Mm -hmm. and continues. And I think that's one of the great things about, you know, comics is like, you know, there are books that are there. We have books now, maybe more than ever, but they were there back then, too. And it was there was nothing more exciting than being a part of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, look, let's jump to the day here. And um, now uh, it's somewhere at the I think was the end of 2016 Um, some reorganizations going on at D.C. and at Vertigo, that's when you you leave. Take us from there and uh, and give us an insight into the beginnings of uh, Black Crown.
1: Yes, so I was eliminated from D.C. Vertigo in the spring of 2016, and I spent the summer doing what I always wanted to do since 1979, which was have a summer off. (laughs) I come from a family run business. My dad's a dry cleaner. So you Uh, can imagine I became very good at pressing pants and I never had a summer off. So I spent the summer reading and writing. I went to the library. I read comics. I read novels. I watched films, but I knew that I wasn't done with comics and I was secretly crafting uh, my own imprint. And I, I must tell you that the when the day that it was announced that I was leaving D.C., I got a wonderful email from Chris Ryle, who was, mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. was working at IDW. He was the chief creative officer and didn't know him at all. Knew his name, mm-hmm. but could mm-hmm. not have picked him up out of a police lineup. But he wrote me a note. He said, I followed your books since you started at Vertigo. I was disappointed to hear you were leaving. If you want to stay in comics, Please let me know. I'd like to talk to you about IDW. And at the time, I I was very flattered. Uh, Mm -hmm. I wrote back. I said, thanks. Uh, I'm taking the summer off. I'll be in touch. So he was my first resume. Um, I was putting together at the end of the summer um, just a strategy for the kind of imprint that I I wanted to spearhead because I wanted to get back to my roots. And my roots were in indie comics. I wanted to get back to that punk rock of love and rockets and really create books that I wanted to read and I wanted to create stories that not only resonated, but that lingered kind of like music. Like maybe you haven't listened to David Bowie's Aladdin Sane for the past four years, but you know, it track by track.
0: Sure. <laughs> I,
1: wanted, I wanted to create single issues that could stand alone, that you could hand to people to get them inspired to read comics, to get more comics. And I just, I wanted to create another comics revolution, to be really frank. You know, there, there was so much out there at the time, and I would go to the comic book store, and I'd be able to pick up a comic, walk to the register, and I could finish reading it. I was really surprised that so many of the books at the time didn't really have enough gravitas. Mm-hmm. I felt they were very lightweight. They were either cluttered with word balloons all over the place, so you didn't know what to read, or they were lightweight, and there was no substance to them. So I wanted to kind of bring back that verve and that bravado of the comics that I loved making. And that's what Black Crown came to be.
0: Well, I pitched, oh, so go on. Sorry.
1: Oh, I was going to say, you know, I pitched um, Chris. We had a chat on the phone. I pitched him my imprint strategy, and he just called me and said I love it. And I went in to meet him and met with the rest of the company, and Ted Adams and Mm -hmm. Greg Goldstein were very supportive, and they knew who I was, and they, you know, we just made it happen. What was interesting is that I was asked if it was okay if they hired me at the the beginning of the year, which I said was fine. Femme Manifique was on my imprint strategy. Uh Uh-huh. So I asked them if I could kickstart that just so I could get my feet wet again, because it had been about four or five months since I was like actively editing, yeah. and I wanted to get a jump start, and I I spent a lot of that time looking around at some of the new people who were part of the of the scene in comics, um, because I not only wanted to bring some of my favorite writers and artists and heavy hitters into Femme Manafique, I wanted to get some new people involved, and I, I, I always felt that with Black Crown, in addition to bringing, in, bringing an imprint to the table that was like punk rock, I wanted to unite what I called hardcore veterans and punk neophytes. Because one of the joys I had in comics, always, was bringing people together from two completely disparate places and seeing them inspire each other mm-hmm. on the page. So I did that at Vertigo, and I wanted to continue that trend. I had hoped I would become sort of you know, known for that. Um, because as you can imagine, when you work with people like Peter Milligan, who have been in comics since 1980, <coughs> I did that for his benefit, by the way. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Peter Milligan has been in comics, like, I think before before you
0: <laughs> and, I'm sure. <laughs>
1: you know, he's one of my favorites. In fact it was once said that that Peter Milligan has written the most inspiring and important works in the history of the written word. And I was quoted as saying that by the way, because okay, I believe okay. that. But you take someone like Milligan, you know, I wanted to work I wanted him to come work at Black Crown with a female artist with someone who had, like, new ideas, who, who was young and mm. and part of the new scene. And, and in the case of Tess Fowler and Kid Lobotomy, you know, she's a fierce feminist. And I think there's nothing more exciting than bringing together two people who really might not have even known each other's works and then really let them at it. Let's see what happens on the page. And that, that's how you create a masterpiece,
0: well, in my, well, it, it, well, you've certainly got all of the uh, the tools and all of the components right at hand. And, and, and one of the things I really want to ask you about is building. I mean, Black Crown is not just. I mean, it's not just a series of comics. I mean, it's a whole conceptual project. Just, I mean, obviously, the way you've described with the uh, with the veterans and the and and the newcomers, but also this um this central motif of the pub. So, tell us more about that, and maybe you can segue from that into tales. Uh, from the black uh, from the Black oh. Crown Pub,
1: absolutely. Yeah, part of my general manifesto for Black Crown was that I wanted there to be uh, a shared landscape. I, I felt like I think it's unprecedented, but I wanted there to be a place where all of the books could connect, hmm. so that even though the books themselves are creator-owned books by the respective teams, I wanted there to be a place where they could essentially co-mingle and corrupt. So <laughs> I, I, I really went back to, St. Mark's Place. And I, I had mentioned to you earlier when I was living in Midtown, my, my week was DC Comics, Midtown Manhattan, work all day, sleep as much as I could at night. But weekends were about St. Mark's Place, so I'd be hanging out downtown. St. Mark's Comics was my local, Mm -hmm. and I thought, why don't I set up my imprint on on a high street like St. Mark's Place? And the idea was each of the there would be real estate on the street, so each of the books from Black Crown would would correlate to a different chunk of real estate. So the first bit of real estate that was taken was the Atomic Turntable, which I had to offer up to Mike Allred. Mm-hmm. And even though Mike has not done any specific work for me yet, that is his joint. That is his <laughs> shop. He promises me he's going to do something very soon. But Mike and Laura were some of my first friends in mm-hmm. comics. We uh, worked together at Kimiko. And – for instance, that will be his, his location. When it came to um, Kid Lobotomy, which is basically about a dysfunctional family of hoteliers. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it involves performing lo- lobotomies. Yes. Um,
0: <laughs> Very interesting lobotomies, I might add. <laughs> yes.
1: So that takes place at a place called the Suites Hotel, which is off of Cannon Street, mm-hmm. which is our main street, yeah. like our St. Mark's place. And that's and, Peter
0: Milligan and Tess Fowler, right? Eh?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And the Black Crown Pub is located at the corner of Cannon and Great Yarn. And that really is our anchor because I'm an Anglophile. I married a British man. (laughs) I know that, you know, you, you can make your way in life through getting people food and drink. So there you go. Yeah.
0: No, it's a great uh, sort of um, uh, uh, organizing principle, um, uh, and and indeed stories flow out of this metaphoric headquarters. Also, I mean, it it's it's a place in the head as well as in this landscape uh, that you've created. In fact, you've really created a whole neighborhood because we can go around to uh, what Cannibal. There's a comic shop there, Cannibal yes. Comics.
1: Uh, which which looks as you would will know, looks a lot like a certain comic book shop. It does in, in, in the Lower East Side. Um, uh,
0: and I assume you're talking about St. Mark's, yes? Indeed. Yes, and uh, but there's also there's a the funeral home that's in um uh, um which one is that the it, um uh, Euthanots. Yes, uh, that's. Uh, but there's a there's there's a just a variety of places uh, that. Form this neighborhood that surrounds the Black Crown uh, pub. And also, the Black Crown pub itself is just full of of rich storytelling. Uh, The the clientele seem to all have a story to tell. tell. They
1: do. And in fact, um, we set up the Black Crown quarterly um, as, you know, we call it a compendium of comics, culture, and cool. Hmm. It's got a lead story that Is called Tales of the Black Crown Pub. Mm -hmm. So that's our anchor. So I hired Rob Davis, who I think is an unsung genius. Um, He is, you might know his work from The Motherless Oven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He is just... That's uh, a great
0: book, by the way, for those who haven't haven't seen it.
1: I agree. And and the sequel, The the Can Opener's Daughter, came out last year, and I believe he's working on the... Uh, third part as it's a trilogy, but what he brought to the black crown quarterly was just a tremendous solid um, look at the pub itself. And I hired Rob, not just because I think he is one of the greatest auteurs of my generation, but because he claims that the women he have dated, all the women that he's dated or married have been barmaids and he has five kids. I don't know exactly how many times he's been married. I think it's been more than once. Okay. But I figured, who, who else could I hire but a guy like this who can write and draw, and he, you know, he's like living the life.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, it, it, that kind of sets the scene. Why don't we just go down the list? There's so many um, really great titles, and maybe you can like tell our listeners a little bit, you know, about each one. We've mentioned. Kid Lobotomy. Oh, that's right. That's the neighborhood hotel, the suites. Um, yes. yeah that, Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether I necessarily would get a reservation there, but it would be a pretty interesting stay if you did.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. I hope you don't get a reservation there. But yeah, it is bizarre. I like to say that Kid Lobotomy is Kafka meets King Lear meets Young Frankenstein. All right. And I throw that in there because another really important part of the Black Crown Manifesto is black humor. Because in all the books I've ever edited, which I'm sure you probably know, there, I always want to represent our times. And right now, there's more dysfunction yeah. in our political and social landscapes. And for me, reading comics is as much a part of entertaining as escaping, educating, and empowering. So for me, black humor was a critical part of of all of the books of Black Crown. So while, yes, there's some surrealist, and existentialist themes, and, you know, I've got uh, a neo-noir book coming out soon by David Lapham called Lodger, and it's a sick, twisted, very Lapham-esque journey through uh, America. There's humor in all of this because, I don't know, I just, despite some rumors that I'm terribly pretentious. I, I'd like to think <laughs> that I've got a good sense of humor as well. And if it doesn't come out in, in our interview, I hope it comes through in the books.
0: Yeah, well, I, I, I suspect it all will. All right. Let's see what else we got here. Um, uh, you, You've got so many punks, not dead. Tell us about that.
1: Oh, punks, not dead. Oh, that is so much fun. That is um, basically uh, it answers the question. What would you do if you, you You never knew your dad, and suddenly your only father figure is the ghost of Sid Vicious. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It is um, an unbelievable uh, story by a British team. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, This this is a a great story. Um, The writer, David Barnett, is a journalist, and... He was a comics fan since the early '90s. Big fan of the Invisible, so knew my work. I met him at uh, the Thought Bubble convention a few years ago, and he um, he had we had a great conversation. And he told me about this idea he had about um, that he wanted to publish as a novel, but. It sounded interesting. I said, well, send me the pitch. You know, at that time, I was putting together the imprint. And I loved it from the get-go. I thought it was super smart. I loved the idea that it's not just about the alleged uh, Sid Vicious, but about the spirit of 77. And it's not just about one punk. You know, it's uh, it's it's also just about... Um, uh, sorry, I think I lost you for a second. Oh,
0: we're still. We're, I, I think so, we're good. Sorry. We're still good.
1: Um, I'm sorry. So nope, the, right. the 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 great thing about this title is 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 how I found Martin Simmons. So I met Martin, the artist, who is just unbelievable. I I, I think he's really the the next Bill Sienkiewicz level artist mm-hmm. in comics. You know, really for people who don't know his work, please check it out because he's just. Blows my mind with each and every issue. I met him a number of years ago. I I saw his portfolio when I was at a convention in England. I thought he looked promising, but I, I you know, I gave him a couple of pointers. I happened to be on Instagram and I thought I was looking at a Bill Sienkiewicz piece. Wow. But then when I looked closer I said I saw his name. I said, Wow, he really got great. So I reached out to him for character sketches. For the pitch mm-hmm. and you know he had it from his very first drawings of Sid and the main character Fergie and it's exciting when a team comes together like that um they just the both David and Martin clicked and it's uh yeah it's an incredible story and the trade paperback comes out in October
0: all right now I have to ask you about Philip Bond I'm a massive fan um
1: Wait, what, what, what was that name again?
0: <laughs> I have to ask. I'm a massive fan. Kill your boyfriend, uh, Vim, Vim Vimana. Vimana. I can't. I can never say it, but I love it I anyway.
1: Know. No <laughs> one can. No one can say it. I, I pretty much, in, in order to marry him, I had to prove I could pronounce it correctly. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, apologize there for me. I, I mean, I could go on down the list, but he's doing a great series that one uh, that I loved in in um, in the uh, Black Crown Quarterly. Um. Uh, what's it? Uh, well, it a rich and Savage. Rich, and, uh, rich and Strange.
1: Cut Rich and Strange. Well, yes. let, me, let, me, let me first, let me backtrack for a moment and just say that whenever people ask me just to, to give them two words on how to break into comics, I say marry well because <laughs> Philip Bond is the secret weapon of Black Crown in addition to, I'll agree with you, his tremendous artwork on the short one of the regular features mm-hmm. of Black Crown, Rich and Strange, about the Cud band, yes. the greatest band that no one knows about, it's that a really great should have, they should, Cud should have taken over America, but there was Oasis. We'll, we'll talk about that some other time. Okay. But Phillips' contribution to Black Crown is tremendous. I mean, basically, Black Crown is a two-person operation, and I and I'll give him seventy-five percent of the credit. Mm. Without him. The imprint would be nothing. In addition to doing artwork, of course, he is the creative director, and he does the graphic design. And when I was hired by IDW, I don't think any of us realized how much he would be the secret weapon. Not so secret anymore. (laughs) But we are really working on this together. So he has been an integral part of everything. He's my consulting editor. Um, Talk about marrying well. You know, he is my... (laughs) You know, the, the father of my tremendously talented son. Mm. Um, and he is, yeah, my favorite artist. I basically married my favorite artist, and it's kind of worked out. It's yeah. been 18 years.
0: Well, you know, he did pretty well, too. So, great. Um, uh, it, uh, well, let's keep going here, because I want to get to film Magnifique while we, you know, before we run sure. out of time. Um, let's see. What else can we <laughs> talk about? Band <laughs>
1: Oh, I, I stepped on your. Oh, on your oh uh, uh, the,
0: the, the, this is another, I guess, mini feature uh, in the quarterly. BanTwits.
1: Oh no, actually not. That's no. not. We. Um, what I would love to talk about, if it's okay, is Assassinistas yeah. because that brings Beato. Oh, yes,
0: and- sure, absolutely. That's yeah, absolutely. Let's go for it.
1: So one of our launch books was Assassinistas, mm-hmm. and it, it's written by Teeny Howard and drawn by the legendary Hall of Famer Gilbert Hernandez. Uh, Teeny Howard, who, oh, by the way, both Teeny and Gilbert contribute to Femme out so we'll have yes. a really smooth segue out of this. Great. Um, so Teeny was one of those new voices that I stumbled upon when I was just reading that suddenly that summer I had off, mm-hmm. and I just fell in love with her work. She was in uh, an anthology called The Secret Loves of Geek Girls, and oh, yeah. her, there are a lot of great short stories in that volume but Mm -hmm. her story just jumped out hers was the one that just lingered so I reached out to her not even knowing that she did sequential comics and honestly from the get-go we were thick as thieves we had so much in common she is sort of part of the new goth girl scene where I was one of those originals back in the day and we just Connected on so many levels, and I asked her to to send me a few pitches. She sent me five pitches. I loved four of them, and I actually liked the fifth one. But of the four, assassinistas blew me away. Mm -hmm. And in a nutshell, she pitched me this idea that, like, um, a woman comes out of bounty hunter retirement. She was part of a trio called the assassinistas, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they kicked butt many years ago. And but they all but they retired for different reasons. One of them was actually missing in action. One of them actually wanted to have kids. And then we had Octavia, who was the main character. She she got out of the business because she had a son. She had to raise her son and get a somewhat mm-hmm. stable job. So basically, the book is about about um, how Octavia is called back in for one last mission. But her former um, Uh, assassinistas weren't available so she she pulls in her son who is uh junior at college who is not interested in leaving school because he's with his boyfriend so octavia says to him look just take a semester off i'm going to train you in murder-based work study and so octavia (laughs) her son dominic and his boyfriend Uh. taylor actually um have to uh get involved in, in in a missing kidnapping case um and wow, what a great team! Teeny Howard and Gilbert Hernandez um, came to be,
0: and what a great it, narrative concept! I mean, and this is a this is a trade paperback collection that I, I believe it's out now, isn't it, or about to? It come is. Out. No, it's
1: been out since July, and right. yeah, we've been getting great feedback on it. One thing about Gilbert, you know, when I mentioned to Teeny that I. Uh, all I could see was Gilbert's characters in my head every time I would read over the the pitch or the outline, and I think Teeny thought I was kidding, you know, when I when I mentioned that I wanted to talk to Gilbert, and I honestly thought she 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 didn't believe me, and it, <laughs> it wasn't until I sent her the character sketches, and the greatest thing of all is just knowing that not only was Teeny honored and delighted to have Gilbert draw her story. But Gilbert was super impressed with Teenie yeah. because he isn't just going to sign on for anything. He doesn't have to. Yeah, yeah I mean, for sure. So- he, he was very impressed with just her skills for a young writer. I mean, I predict Teeny to be the next big voice in comics because she really, she not only has like a clever cadence and uh, tremendous world-building chops, She's she's just smart and she can just handle so many different diverse characters. She's one to watch.
0: And they they bring your concept to life. You know the uh, the, the the veteran writer with the uh, with the the exciting newcomer.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. So well, I I I, I want to hear you talk more about Black Crown, but I also want to hear you talk about. Finn So let's segue here. We we you know we're, we're we're probably getting down to our the last few minutes. Let's talk about this amazing uh, anthology. So now it's fifty profiles of extraordinary women. Now how big a book is
1: it? It's well, the soft cover is two hundred and forty pages. Mm-hmm. Basically, the we we added a sixteen page signature to the Kickstarter. So there's like a great section in the back of bonus material. I sort of did a a backstory of how the book came together. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Um, How much
0: did you raise on Kickstarter, if I may ask?
1: We were close to 100K. Wow. I am so grateful to every person that pledged and backed us and every person that talked about it. Um, It was my first foray with Kickstarter, so I reached out to Brian and Christy Miller of Hi-Fi Color and Design. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. were... um, friends and colleagues in the industry we worked together many times um and they were mostly they worked as colorists mm-hmm. on on my projects but they did a kickstarter book and i knew that they had the expertise because i was a complete newbie when it came to the platform of kickstarter but basically what happened was it was an idea that i had you know i was when i was um thinking about how few books there were about female empowerment in comics. I I knew I wanted to do some kind of anthology and I, I was really pushed over the edge after the election. I had just come back from (laughs) England, like everyone.
0: Yeah.
1: And I was jet lagged. I woke up in the middle of the night to see the the results. And I was just really disappointed by a missed opportunity for women to be really straight with you. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was really bummed out. You know, I felt like that, you know, we should have had our time as women, you know, in the White House. And I noticed that the days that followed, there was such vitriol in the comic scene. And what bothered me was I felt as bad as everyone else. And I was angry, but it wasn't doing anyone any favors. And I really felt like we needed to come together and do something positive. And that's sort of where Femme at a Feet came to life. I reached out to some of my closest friends and colleagues and I just said, look, let's just like each salute a female icon from today, from the past. And let's put together a book that really shows the next generation that like, don't let this bother you. We can overcome this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And let's just salute women that have got us this far and continue to pave the way and shatter ceilings. So it was, an absolute labor of love to put together, and there was really no overlap. I would call up writers like Gail Simone or Teenie Howard, and I would ask them to you know, come up with, with one or two people that really personally inspired them. And Kelly Sudeconnick chose Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. and I had T. Franklin write about Michelle Obama, the story that really blew my mind to pieces was Chuck Brown and Sanford Green doing Harriet Tubman.
0: Oh, great. Yeah. I mean, and there's well, so many stories. I mean, it's really incredible. Um,
1: I, I wanted on. to make no, I wanted to make sure uh, the, the interesting thing about that story is that when that story came in, I couldn't utter a syllable for an hour. And as an editor, that was the moment I could figure out, the running order of the stories because I knew the Harriet Tubman story had to be first or last. And I chose to end it with that story because everybody should know that story. And Sanford Green is one of my favorite artists. I'll always say I married my favorite. I've got a couple on the side. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Second favorite, third favorite. Sanford is one of those people. And when I tell you he brought it home and then some – If there's, you know, I can't even, I I could talk for days about the beauty of that story. But what was really important to me was that it was a book that covers not just politics, but also pop because, you know, just like with Black Crown, you know, I'm inspired by music and it's so important that we look at the arts and sciences as well. And we just, we salute the people that got us to where we are today and we look at you know, we look back to, to move forward and we show, you know, young people that, you know, there's, there's so much work to be done. And I think it's the personal stories in this volume and the personal ang- angles, in addition to the fact that there are many biopics. we just have to keep looking around ourselves and, and elevating the art form.
0: Well, it, it's just, it's just, uh, crammed with fabulous stories. Um, La Mama a profile of La Mama Ellen Stewart the great downtown uh, oh, dramatic yeah. impresario by Ron Wimberly uh, uh, comics gets its its uh, day in the in the spotlight is too Dale, a Portrait of Dale Messick by um, uh, Brenda Starr Pete creator Braddock. by yes. Paige Braddock yeah. um, what Octavia Butler um, a profile of the great science fiction writer uh, yes. by what, Jake Grayson and, um, uh, Jason Alexander. Ramiko yes. Takahashi is profiled by uh, Chana Clixton Flores. Uh, this is just, uh, I mean, I'm just skimming the surface here because there's so many, uh, not only, uh, great women profiled, but just this galaxy of, of, of star, uh, artists, writers and artists who are, who are, uh, uh put these stories together.
1: Thank you so much yeah I'm really proud of it and I, I feel really lucky that IDW has put out just this beautiful volume um, it, when you when you take a look at the soft cover you'll see that there are French flaps on it there was we did not skimp on this edition I mean it's really just like top-notch production values we print all of our books in Korea and the it, it's just unbelievable how the attention to detail that they have. And I'm so proud of both Femme Manafeek and every Black Crown book we've published. And we're celebrating our one year anniversary this year at New York Comic Con. So ah. I hope you're going to stop by for a cocktail.
0: I mo- oh, I I'll, well, I will stop by uh, both to, to see you, to see the books and the cocktail is just, uh, well, it's icing on the cake if I can mix a metaphor there, but it's, uh, but the cocktail sounds fabulous. <laughs> so, cool. um, look we're we're running out of time, but I couldn't have a uh, man I couldn't think of a better way to spend an hour talking about comics than with you Shelley. this this looks great. um it's, I really enjoyed my reading. I've got more reading to do, and I'm gonna make sure I go read that uh, that final story in the film Manifique that you mentioned um because really i I love the whole book. so oh, look, thank you so much yeah, so look, thank you, uh, and I want to thank you as I do everyone for being on more to come.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Thank you.